I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. I've told you a number of times why I started this podcast and how much I love these conversations. Following is one of my new favorites uh, for a number of reasons. I had the chance to sit with Anthony Poon, author, musician, speaker, artist, teacher, award-winning architect and IIDA interior designer. Poon received his Bachelor of Arts from Berkeley and his Master of Architecture from Harvard. So we talked about architecture, but we also discuss music and art, compare and contrast these disciplines and explore ways to incorporate new ideas into traditional applications using non-traditional methods. It's fun. Uh, I love this conversation, and I hope you do too. Speaking of combined arts, Convo by Design is presented by Snyder Diamond, always first with what's next in the kitchen and bath. That's the philosophy of second-generation president Russ Diamond. His travels take him across the planet, looking for the appliances, fixtures, and finishes for the kitchen and bath that allow designers and architects to create amazing spaces for their clients, products that make life better, like those from Mila. I toured the Mila showroom and was shown all of the products that Mila has to offer, from coffee machines to ovens, ranges, hoods, combi steam ovens, washers, dryers, all imbued with Mila's Immer Besser philosophy, hard-coded into the very DNA of this family-owned and operated company since its founding in 1899. Mila products are made to serve and built to last. They possess the form and function you expect, and they were created with the future in mind. The technology integrated into these appliances, it's tremendous, and they were designed to work together seamlessly, all to make life easier. Now, combine these world-class products with the amazing Snyder Diamond service, and you have a powerful partnership. Find out more at any of the three Los Angeles area Snyder Diamond showrooms, and check out some fantastic limited-time offers and promotions from Mila while you're there. You can also learn more at SnyderDiamond.com. Before we get to this conversation with Anthony, I want to thank you for listening and invite you to join in the conversation. You can find us at Convo by Design on Twitter and Convo by Design, this time with an X, on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find videos from these conversations on our YouTube channel. Uh, again, search Convo by Design and you'll find over 120 videos uh, from some of your favorite guests. This is architect Anthony Poon. We can ignore the fact that we've been talking about intellectual property rights and copyright law as it relates to architecture and design, which some people find really interesting and others have absolutely no interest in it. I think it's, it's fascinating and important for creators and authors of work to, to hold some kind of right and license to what they've created. Well, and it's, it's funny. It's interesting. I'll share one story with you. I was at Modernism Week mm -hmm. this past year. Yeah, I was there. And we had a conversation with a couple of architects... Um, a designer, myself, and we got into this conversation of copyright mm -hmm. and intellectual property rights for creative types as it relates to the architecture and design space. Architect looks at me, and perhaps she had been a slightly overserved, but she said, why would I want to own the building I created for somebody else? And I thought about it for a minute. And my immediate response, albeit completely argumentative, was, well, why wouldn't you? You created something. Right. It You're belongs to you. It's part of your legacy, your portfolio, your body of work. Yeah. But a lot of people also want to own it so that they can protect it, if that's the interest. 
so they have the grounds to stand on to pursue someone else if they've taken it, abused it, misused it, transformed it into something else. Or, or even simply appropriated it for their own benefit. Yeah, right. And by the way, you can sue anybody for any reason in this country. It doesn't yes. mean you're going to win. Yes, that's America. But you can do it. Right. And when it comes to creative types, I, I love, if you've listened to Combo by Design at all, you know that I am neither an architect nor a designer. Mm -hmm. I'm just a fan. Okay. I'm just a fan who loves talking about Good. it. Good. So need fans. So, you know, and that being said, I'm also in the industry because I speak at many of the events. Um, I, I have produced design houses. Um, I, I love this space. I, mm -hmm. I love the business. But it's really interesting to me. And I'm really excited to speak with you because you can also have that same conversation, not just about architecture and design, but about many other arts. So it's really interesting to me. Yes. So I talk to a lot of creative types. And the people that I speak to are really masters of what they do, be it architecture, design, chefs, um, set decorators. Fashion right? designers, cake decorators. Musicians. Right. Well, I don't talk to cake de decorators. <laughs> not, not that I wouldn't, but I just That's haven't. Part but, of the design industry as well. But the point is, is that everyone I talk to has a creative specialty. Right. But very few have all of them at the same time, like you do. So explain this to me. Artist, musician... Architect, which is which? Which take? I mean, obviously, you're an architect by trade, right? But do you enjoy all of them? All of these creative pursuits the same? I, I enjoy all of them. <laughs> uh, I I enjoy them all, both differently and, and in similar ways. My passion has always been music, um, and that's that's led me to many other things. It, it's the most abstract art form. Um, I think there was a pragmatic chapter in my life where I thought, can I really be a musician as a living, um, as a profession? And I, I thought, uh, even harder for me, I, I wanted to pursue being a classical musician. Um, and there was a point in my life where I was, I was considering, do I go to Juilliard for grad school or go to Harvard for a graduate degree in architecture? And it occurred to me, if I were to ask any of my colleagues, name five classical pianists in the world, it can't be done. And if you go uh, to any city and you think of how many talented architects there are, there are hundreds of them. So a practical side of me said, I can be an architect, I can open up a firm, I can design lots of buildings, and I can still play piano every day, which I do. Versus being a full-time classical pianist, I could not be an architect on the side. Those two then also uh, have, have uh, generated my interest in, in art, painting, mixed media, art, uh, and I'm also uh, recently uh, a published author, so writing is, has become probably my latest passion. Isn't that a little selfish, just taking all of the arts for yourself? Doing everything, most people can only do one at a time. You're I <laughs> well, interesting you say that. It is selfish in that it makes me happy, but, but, I, but, but all f four of these forms uh, require an audience. That's true. That's true. And it's something, something else you said is very interesting to me. So, you, you know, a, a classical musician. So for years, I interviewed the um, musicians that came through the Playboy Jazz Festival right. every year. And what a joy. Because talking to jazz musicians is, a, is about as esoteric yes. and odd and crazy conversations as you can possibly have. Wayne Shorter and I had, had an 80-minute conversation that, that began and ended with space aliens. So, 
I mean, it can just go anywhere you want it to go. Same time, very interesting. Some of the older and most accomplished jazz musicians, mm -hmm. interestingly enough, were they, be they from Cuba or New Orleans, all said that it started with classical. Right. Classical was sort of the, the base art that they learned before they went into jazz. And jazz is one of those, it's, it's not, you know, jazz is completely a creative concept mm -hmm. and a creative construct. It, there's, you can go in so many different directions at any given time. So I find that really interesting. Now, the question I have for you is, how, did, how, did, how does the music affect your architecture? It's funny you mentioned jazz. Um, my uh, thesis in my master's program was studying jazz and how jazz is made and seeing if that can apply to the way architecture is made. Really? And, and let me explain. Architecture is a very slow process. It's tedious, it's overwrought. It's, it's a creative process, but it can take years to design and create a building. It can take a generation to create a cathedral. Um, even a house that I'm currently working on, we're in our 14th year in designing a big estate. Compare that to jazz, which is spontaneous. Improvisation is, is one of the, the, the key strokes of being a jazz musician. As you said, they studied classical, but as most artists, you have to know the rules before you break them. And jazz is about looking to the future and breaking rules. Um, so I wanted to see how jazz is made and look at the spontaneity and see if that can be put into architecture. You think of jazz musicians, three or four can just sit down with their instrument and start playing. And within seconds, there is music. That, that's rare to happen in architecture. So my interest is, is trying to replicate some ways in which architecture can be designed fast, in which we can work as a team in a collaborative way, uh, like jazz musicians, where every idea has merit, where we play on top of each other, where if I'm drawing and I accidentally spill paint, maybe like a jazz musician, I can make that into something all of a sudden on my drawing and the paint generates new ideas that I might not have thought of. At the same time, I have a feeling this conversation is going to be going a lot of at the same time and, and extending the <laughs> yes. ideas. But what's really interesting is, and again, at the same time, um, experimentation in music is far less expensive than experimentation in architecture. And it's, it's, the, lim the limitations are far fewer. You know, I, I will tell you, so I'm a huge jazz fan. Love Miles Davis. Me too. Bitches Brew does not work for me. It's not my thing. Okay. But I respect the process that went into creating that. Right. And sort of what it represents, right? A complete, a complete look at what got him to that point tore it down completely mm -hmm. and put out something that won critical acclaim. A lot of people loved it. A lot of people didn't, but it, it, it accomplished its goal, right? Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you another example of that in architecture as I see it. And I, I don't know, I'll, I want your view on this. So Wallace Neff, mm -hmm. remarkable architect. Yes. A legend, classic. Correct. Yet in Pasadena, uh, sitting there is the last remaining Wallace Neff bubble house. Mm -hmm. So, again, the idea is completely divergent from what got him, what, what got his notoriety and his fame. It is the idea that the GIs are coming back from war 
from the theater of war and there's a housing crisis in Southern California. Sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. So looking for ideas, he decides to basically upside down a swimming pool, right? With the bladder, right? And he gunites it and then you build a house inside of it. Right. He died in that last, in that last hmm. one that's in Pasadena. His idea was to, to build three or 400,000 of them. About 20,000 or so were built. Wasn't, wasn't a success, but you look at something like that now, and it's like, you know what? That's not a bad idea now. Perhaps it was just too soon. But again, that's an improvisation, a very expensive improvisation right. that fell flat. I think the, the true test is, is time. The example I always like to speak of is the Eiffel Tower. That when that was created and designed, it was, it was hated. Every politician, artist, architect, engineer, sculptor signed petitions throughout Paris, throughout France to have it torn down. You look at it now, of course, it is the beloved monument of the city of the entire country and, and one of the greatest aesthetic accomplishments in the world. Um, for Wallace Neff, Perhaps the idea worked for a short time. It, it didn't last. I don't think it really was that practical. I don't think it converted into something that people would call home. Uh, but you look at it now and where we are with our housing crisis in most cities, perhaps those ideas can, can come back into play. So what a, what a happy transition. Uh, modern for the masses. Yes. Right? So... Modern is something that you're obviously, it's an idea that you have embraced wholeheartedly. Yes. And the idea of creating it for the masses is simply a, that's not about the aesthetic or the ideas that go into it. That's simply a pricing structure. That's a, that's a, that's a monetary model. Um, how, do you, how do you jive those two and what's the idea behind it? Well, the, the thesis, Modern for the Masses, uh, came out of a study of a lot of homes in L.A. The, the ones that we see in the magazines, the glossy pictures, the websites, the homes that we love in the Hollywood Hills that sell for $10 million, $20 million. Um, uh, and to clarify, modern to us isn't just the vocabulary of the architecture, it's a lifestyle. Um, it's, it's living in such a way that the indoors and the outdoors connect the flexible open floor plan that allows people to entertain and, and be together as a family. It's the high ceilings, it's the walls of glass, it's, it's all sorts of cool ideas that have proven to make sense in this climate. Um, I, I'm always surprised when a, a client comes and says they want a Cape Cod house and they want it in Santa Monica. My response is, so you want a house with very little natural light, small rooms, low ceilings, and no windows. And then they realize, uh, actually, it's not what they're looking for. Um, but to get back to Modern for the Masses, the, the challenge was how can we create these beautiful modern homes for a fraction of the price, build them at a production level, a mass production level, and, and sell them. Um, we teamed with a developer named Andrew Adler uh, who was able to find distressed properties in Palm Springs. We designed a few prototypes, very modern, uh, not at all what you see in track housing, not the the cheap Spanish-style homes with the fake trim and the fake tile roofs and the wedding cake decor. These are modern homes, very strictly modern. Lots of glass, uh, open space, very sleek. Uh, we designed them. Uh, we proposed them for Palm Springs. Uh, as soon as we released the drawings, we had sold 14 of them within a week. 
Um, so we started building. Uh, to date, in the last four years, we've completed over 200 homes and they've all been built. They're all sold. Uh, they've been published extensively. We've been awarded over two dozen national and regional design awards from colleagues from the building industry, from developers and, and construction companies. Um, it's a program that has not been accomplished, as far as I know, by any other architecture studio other than mid-century modern, and we're talking going back 60 years. So the theory's been tested, and it appears to have passed. Yes. Why? Because there is a demographic out there that has not been served. These track housing companies that build communities of 100 homes and they rubber stamp these homes out, they're not selling. People aren't interested in those homes. Our, our imagined clientele, the, the home buyer, was someone that wanted the modern lifestyle, someone that believed in technology, iPhone, iPad, completely connected all the time, and also someone who had a concern for sustainability, for being green. Those three things were, were critical to us. And of course, all of these needed to be done on a budget that was about one-fourth what you would see most homes in California being built for. And that was kind of the perfect storm. It, it made every home buyer realize this is exactly what they wanted. Our homes in the last few years have outsold every single developer in the Palm Springs region month after month all developers combined our homes as to outsold all of those competitors because we have a product that everyone's been dying for. If you take the popular mid-century modern home, um, which is a style that everyone really likes, uh, I'm not a huge fan, we can talk about that later, but if you take that idea and add today's technology to it and construction methods, ideas about climate and insulation and smart home, uh, also making it green, I mean, that, that's kind of where we've, uh, where we've taken these new modern homes. So it, it can't be all the fact that it's tracked so you're getting cost cutting over the, because you're building so many homes. Correct. There have to be some, some things that are limited or cut out. There has to be, what is it? What is being removed? There is nothing being removed. In fact, what we're adding is, is a certain kind of value that makes a home better and happens to save money in construction dollars. So are you, are you saying that really with, with these projects, it's just the profit motive? The, the profit is being cut out? I mean, not cut out, No, because right? everyone no. has to make money. The, these homes, as far as I know, for the developers and the investors are, are very profitable. In fact, the development company was in the LA Business Journal having uh, grown one of, as one of the fastest growing companies to the tune of something like 400% growth in one year. What, what, we're, what we're changing, and I wouldn't say we're cutting or reducing anything, it's just the way we're rethinking architecture. There, there are dozens of ways we've done things to make it more affordable to build. Some are very technical, some are very simple. As an example, these homes are elemental and simple. Um, they have two ceiling heights. One ceiling height that's lower and intimate for all the bedrooms, and one that's very high and grand for all the public rooms, like the kitchen, dining, and living room. This is an idea that makes modern homes very luxurious, very simple, very easy to understand. You compare that to a typical traditional house in Beverly Hills, there's 20 ceiling heights. The, there's the entry, there's the foyer, the hallway, the powder room, the niches. What do we need all that for? 
it's not even what people want, and it's what's driving up construction costs. As these wood framers are are framing twenty different ceiling heights through, throughout a house. So it, it's interesting too to hear you explain that because if you look at something, and there's there's precedent for the idea. So if you look back at a Neutra, you know, if you look at the Neutra VDL house, for example, right. and you walk into your you have a low ceiling in the hallway where ceilings don't need to be high in the hallway and then you walk into a very small bedroom that has a very high ceiling it gives the impression that the the room itself is bigger than it actually is the idea of contrast and and that ceiling height can also be matched with the living room that's down the hall so you may still have only two ceiling heights but because they're being applied at different levels throughout the house there's there's a a perception that there are many differences where as in fact you're just using what you have for the greatest effect it's similar to the approach to minimal art that you can have a few brush strokes and still be dramatic and impactful in your composition uh, so in that way you could say that we've cut out a lot of pieces of architecture I'm, I'm saying we actually reduce it to the essence of a house which is what people want to what was necessary to what was necessary and what's desirable besides ceiling heights as I mentioned do all our homes need all these hallways and niches and alcoves and transition spaces our homes are, are are just glorious luxurious big open rooms with a lot of glass and that's what people want people don't want compartmentalized homes with the kitchen shut off from the dining room which is shut off from the entry and shut off from the living room I mean, people want homes that flow and and we're lucky to be in a california climate where you can open up the doors and let the breeze come right in isn't that interesting, though? I mean, tastes really have changed. I mean, because if you look at how, how homes were built 60 years ago, mm-hmm. or even sooner in some cases, everything was chopped up. And right. it, it was chopped up by design because you would have this room had a pur- every room had a purpose, right? The, the living room, the formal living room had a purpose. Which no one uses. Nobody uses. everyone knows of their parents' house where there's a living room, and no one ever went into it. We all gathered in the family room with our friends to watch TV. Right. And, I think there's also changes in construction methods that allow us to do this. Obviously, there's more engineering and more creativity allow us to span larger rooms so you don't need to have walls everywhere. There's uh, better ideas of insulation and types of glass that allows homes to stay cool. You know, I was joking about Cape Cod architecture. A lot of it gener- was generated out of the, the time, the limits of construction, and the weather. If it is snowing outside and you can't keep your home warm, you probably don't want too much glass. These days, we don't really have to worry as much because there are engineered glasses. There are, they are high energy, high efficiency. They allow us to do a lot more things. What do you think? I, I tend to ask some, some fairly pedestrian questions for some generally some deeper reasons. What did you get? I mean, from a schooling standpoint, we're talking Harvard and mm-hmm. Cal Berkeley, right? Correct. Okay. What did, what did you get? from higher education as it relates to your artistic representation of your projects and how you work. What did, what did you get from that experience and how, does that, how, does that de- how is that demonstrated in your work now? You're asking about sort of the processes that we went through? So here's what I'm asking. The learning process that you go through mm-hmm. because it seems to me that what you're doing is construction has been around forever. Construction mm-hmm. as a concept is not new. Building a home is not new. What you're doing is you're taking 
the elements, you're looking at what goes into what you do as an architect. And you're almost intellectually deconstructing right. it to try to figure out what you can remove that will actually, by subtraction, add to the process. Right. I'm trying to figure out, because I, I have a theory, and the theory is that you have an artistic side, and then you have an educational side, mm -hmm. that by joining the two, you can figure out how to do what you're trying to do in a systematic way, that right. you're, you're limiting the cost of improvisation. I think the, the, the thing is, in architecture and in most arts, there's two components. Uh, architecture has the problem-solving component, where you've got to figure out the square footage, you've got to figure out for the client what the program is, how many bedrooms or how many seats in a restaurant. Uh, you've got the problem-solving of construction costs, of budget, of city codes and getting building permits. On top of all that, completely differently, you have to add the level of artistry. That you at the level of, of creativity. You take music, um, part of the work is learning all the notes on the page. You, a classical musician can spend years learning one piece trying to master the flurry of 10,000 notes that fly by in three minutes. That's not music though, that's just getting the, the notes right. After you get to that point, you then have to make it sound beautiful. You then have to add your interpretation, the lyrical aspect that makes it a, a work of art. I think in school, um, my programs did well in teaching us to, to go back and, and forth between the problem solving and the pragmatic, which is a good part of architecture, as well as the poetic and aspirational sides. A building uh, has to be part science in that it can't fall down. It's got to withstand rain. It's got to put a roof over your head, but it's also got to be uh, a little more enlightening than, than just a structure. It's got to be beautiful. It's got to make you have a reason to get up every day and go to work and go to this office building or on the weekend go to the park or go to the museum. Um, so I think it's, it's really that balance of those two things that, that, that I've been lucky enough to, to have banged into my head through all my professors. So as you, as you look at the work now, what, do you, what would you like this to be? in 10, 20 years from now? What is the short-term legacy value of what you're doing right now? The legacy is that, that I hope that my explorations become an inspiration for someone else. I, I see any artistic endeavor uh, as a constantly moving target, as an evolution. And we're all only contributing one small step to this evolution. I may work my whole career and only master three buildings that I actually think are worthwhile. Um, similarly to a, a musician who says, yeah, we've, I've composed 500 pieces, but I've actually only think these dozen are great. I hope those few pieces that I've created are enough for someone to see one day and it, it inspires them to, to move their art process to another level in another direction. And, and that's how progress moves forward. That's what I call civilization and, and, and that's what I hope to do. So the concept of the tract home. Yes. And what what these modern homes represent in a market like Palm Springs, sort of a multi part question is what is the what is the prospect for them outside of that in an area where you 
you know, Palm Springs has had so many different lives that picking up the land is mm -hmm. not necessarily a problem. Now it is, right. um, but 10 years ago it wasn't. And the concept of the tract home, you know, I I'm wondering too why it doesn't work. Things like, like the geodesic dome, mm -hmm. same concept, same premise and idea, but that never caught on. So it's, you know, you in certain enclaves it did. Mm -hmm. What is it going to take for this idea to expand to a general market? I think we're already on the path for that. I think something like the geodesic dome didn't work because it's, it, it couldn't translate into a house. Um, I think track housing, now, now what we're doing is still falling under the category of track housing. Um, it's just people have stopped using that label and, and prefer using production home, meaning mass production. For example, for a 50 community, a 50 home community, we would design four or five homes and they get mass produced, which is how track housing works. Um, I think track housing is failing because these companies are large. They're, they're money driven. They're stuck in old ideas. It takes a, a lot to, to turn a company around um, and, and look towards the, the future. Um, I think of the example of, of Tower Records, where I hung out all the time. Uh, it was my living room, you listened to albums. If you recall, a decade ago, MP3 players came out, iPods. Tower Records claimed that it was just a fad, that they would hold on to their records, or LPs and their albums, and, and look what happened to them. Tower Records is gone. iTunes has taken over the world. So these track home companies that we compete with and, and we beat out month to month, they're stuck in these old ideas. Again, these, these Mediterranean homes, these things I call Taco Bell homes, no one wants them in California. So our ideas are applicable beyond Palm Springs. We've looked at Arizona, we looked at Las Vegas, we looked at areas in Orange County. There are lots of areas where these kind of homes can be built or what people are looking for. And, and, their, and their beautiful homes that, that you know, I, I innocently go to the open homes uh, of, of some of these production housing companies and I watch the buyers. I see them walk through all the homes and, and when they walk into one of our homes, they instantly say, this is the one I want. So we're doing something right. Okay, total sidetrack here, but you brought up MP3s. Did you have a Zune? Do you remember the Zune? Yes. <laughs> That didn't last very long. No, it didn't. I did not have one. It didn't. I had every version of a Walkman. Right. And eventually jumped to an iPod. <laughs> Zoom. Zoom. One of, like the Betamax of, uh, of MP3 it's, players. It's got to start somewhere. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, so when you look at these areas, are you looking at just where you want to apply residences? Or are you also looking at sort of... A, you know, to back up, you look at a city like Irvine. Mm -hmm. Irvine is a completely master-planned community. Right. The, the knock on Irvine is that it's, it's, it's not unique. It's boring. It's, it's predictable. Boring. It's formulaic. Yeah. They know that they themselves are called the beige company, not just because everything is beige, yeah. but that it's beige in thinking. Yeah. They're, they're aware of that. And also, Irvine Company is a client of ours. Okay, so let me, let me also say, at the same time, while everything is as you described, 
their streets are wide. Mm-hmm. Their sidewalks are level. Right. Their stoplights seem to be synchronized. Their streets are clean. Their streets safe. are clean. The schools are great. I don't get caught in traffic when right. I'm in Irvine. Right. They have public fields that right. are Im- impeccably it's well kept. It's in one kind of definition. It's kind of spooky mm-hmm. in the same way, but at the same time. Stafford architecture. It is a master-planned community. Mm-hmm. They thought about everything to right. the point where there, there is still vacant property that's not being built on. But when it is going to be built on, it's already zoned. Mm-hmm. It's already designed. It's already kind of, for the most part, here's what it's going to, you don't have to have a, a unique drawing. You can tell what it's sort of going to look like and what it's going to do and how it's going to serve the community. Where There has to be a balance there, but at the same time, when you look at these neighborhoods that, that you're, you're developing, do you look at, at how they serve as well? Are you looking at what else they do besides the residences themselves? You bring up the concept of master planning. Um, for modern, for the masses, it is currently a residential master plan that we look at a, a parcel of, of land and, and look at how it can be divided up into 14 homes or 50 homes or 100 homes and, and build out those communities. Uh, but it is with other clients that we do take that, that look uh, at, at how buildings can come together. Our, our work spans from residential to commercial, uh, from institutional work in schools like UCLA to Buddhist foundations, um, to, to homeless shelters and, and mega mansions. So the idea of master planning is, is critical. Um, you mentioned Irvine Company. There's a, a small department there that we're a part of that is, is a think tank. Um, that is set up to break them out of what they admittedly call themselves the beige company to see what new ideas can happen, but still within their safe thinking of what is profitable, what's constructible, what can meet the bottom line of a, of a business plan. And, I, and I, look at, I look at that company, the Irvine company, in, in contrast with the company that, and I don't know if it's one company or many, that's doing um, Playa Vista. Mm-hmm. Playa Vista is is another example of wide open spaces, master plan community that is far more jumbled in its application. I think I think the idea is is similar, but the the idea is similar, but the application is different. So there's traffic. Right. It doesn't it doesn't work. The, I don't want to say it doesn't work, but it doesn't work the same way that Irvine works. Right. Um, so you know I. Obviously, there are different ways to do it, and there's different ways to accomplish a similar goal. There isn't one path. There's multiple. And I'm just sort of curious, as, as you look at this, do you, do you look at it strictly from a, from a residential neighborhood, or do you look at it as a, as a master plan community? Two I ways of looking at the, it. The, the trick with the master plan is, is trying to predict the future. And I don't know who has that crystal ball. The Irvine Company. They do for their environment. They, they clearly know. I, I think uh, Crusoe affiliated may be another. Yeah. Um, it, it's, when we work on master plans, we're asked, are you asking us to master plan out five years, okay. 10 years, or 50 years? If it's a residential uh, community, we're asked to predict the future. How will people live? Will people even have cars? Do we need garages in 25 years well okay you you've just touched on it's it's so funny you've touched on a number of things so so i guess 
you know, kind of, yeah. You know, the, the architect is the equivalent of, of, a, of a futurist. We're, we're a fortune teller. Well, there's a difference between a fortune teller and a futurist. You know, a, fortune, a futurist is, is, not, is not by nature, by what their, what their job title is. They're not, a, they're not a fortune teller or reading a crystal ball. Their job is to look at all of the data, mm-hmm. apply current situations, um, attach it to a, a trajectory, mm-hmm. right. a formula right. to figure out where you'll be in 25, 50, 100 years from now. And that's the job of the futurist. And it's no, no, there's no science to it per se. There's no guarantee that they're going to be right. It, it's, it's exactly right. We, we look at traffic patterns. And of course, everyone knows there's traffic and impossible parking and, and the cost of an automobile and gas, it's no surprise that, that the taxi cab companies have evolved and, and in comes Uber and Lyft. Shortly after comes Bird and Lime. It, it's, it's changing constantly and, and we are asked to think that way. When we're even designing something as simple as a, as a kitchen, someone's asking us how will someone use a kitchen in, in five years or ten years are we still going to be cooking is food delivery going to be great or can we just somehow imagine and a, and a turkey will pop out of the oven it, it's it's a fascinating topic but but as we design projects whether it is a theater or performing arts center a church or a house these buildings are intended to last a lifetime and we do have to look to the future is is that the what it, what is a lifetime of a well, architecture. No, no, no I, yeah, fifty yeah. years. Fifty years. That that's typically the thirty-five, forty, fifty years. They're, they're asking us to design. That's kind of the lifespan of technology of materials before a building completely deteriorates and, and needs to be fully renovated. That's does, kind of our target. Does that does that make architecture somewhat disposable? Yes, and and and. Again, I'm completely fine with that because I don't that mean is it part in a, of the process. I don't mean it in a bad way. It, it's a physical item, like a car, like a phone, like a piece of clothing. It is disposable. There are things that are worth, back to what we started with, worth restoring, worth preserving. Uh, but a lot of things are, are meant to come and go. Well, we, we talked about, you mentioned Tower Records. Uh, clearly, you grew up around... Southern California? Uh, I grew up in San Francisco. Okay. Yes. Okay. So there was Tower Records. The Tower Center. Records in North Beach. Yeah. So, I, you know, I spent half my childhood in, in Tower Records. Yes. You know, same, same as you. Right. And when, when you're in the moment, you never imagine that there's even a possibility that they would not exist anymore. Correct. That's a brand that's going to last forever. Well, but I think we're now the thinking, the zeitgeist is that we're realizing things will change. I think the thinking that we had a generation ago or decades ago that things will last, I think people realize nothing lasts. I mean, as we watch tape recording being replaced by LPs, being replaced by CDs, then by MP3, and I mean, it's happening so fast. I think we all accept that whatever sneaker we're buying is going to be out of fashion in three hours. I could talk to you about architecture and music for the next three hours. We'll and, schedule it in. And so, but here's what I want to do. I think you bring up a lot of really interesting ideas mm-hmm. that in six months, a year from now, 
will also be interesting to go back and review. Yes. And I think we should probably do that. Let's do that. Thanks for the time. Thank you very much. Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vendome Furniture. Design culture, it's the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. They create dialogue between environment and form. Vendome pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamour that is both unique and extraordinary. And isn't that what design is all about? Creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest? Vendome products are simple and elegant, contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted, modern, durable, molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique and they beg to be enjoyed. They search the planet for the right designers that embody the Vendome spirit and work together to create remarkable pieces into an exclusively Vendome mode of expression. And if you haven't seen Vendome before, you can check them out in uh, some of the Convo by Design videos you'll find on our YouTube channel. But you can find them in their showrooms at the D&D Building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in LA, or online at Vendome.com. <laughs>